Hey, daters. Are you sick of small talk and no date being planned? Well, I'm excited to introduce you to First Rounds on Me, a revolutionary dating app designed for modern singles who are fed up with the frustrations of today's dating scene. The app is all about actually helping you plan dates and build genuine connections. How so? Well, the only way you match with someone is by planning a date. Send a date, a time, and a location, and then the rest is up to you. Ready to go on real dates? You can get one free month of their premium subscription with code DOCTOR, D-O-C-T-O-R. Download First Rounds on Me using the link in the show notes and start building meaningful connections offline. Hello and welcome to Reimagining Love. I'm Dr. Alexandra Solomon. Relationships have the power to wound us and the power to heal us. As a clinical psychologist, author, and professor at Northwestern University, I've devoted my life to studying intimate partnerships and family dynamics. On Reimagining Love, I'm here to translate complex clinical topics into tools and takeaways that you can use in your relationships today. If you're ready to develop relational self-awareness and create vibrant and loving relationships with the people who matter most to you, you've come to the right place. I'm so glad that you're here. Welcome to today's episode of Reimagining Love. You know, I am well aware that the audience of this podcast skews towards female-identifying listeners. So some of you may have seen the title of this episode and wondered if it would be a relevant listen for you. Well, I really think that you're going to find today's conversation interesting no matter what your gender identity is, and in particular, if you are a person who is partnered with a man. And for the male-identifying listeners of Reimagining Love, I hope this episode speaks right to your heart, and I am so grateful that you join me here for these conversations. My guest today is Connor Beaton, and we're talking all about his new book, Men's Work, a practical guide to face your darkness, end self-sabotage, and find freedom, which is a guide for men to embark on a process of healing and self-reflection. Connor encourages all of us to look beyond the confines of traditional masculinity and to see how patriarchy has harmed men as well as women, often stunting and inhibiting men's ability to get in touch with their emotions and connect with others when they are struggling. And of course, there are many men out there who don't struggle with emotional openness, connection, and intimacy, but so many do, and as a culture, we still have an awfully long way to go. Connor Beaton has been working for almost a decade as a New York-based coach, teacher, and speaker who helps men and women from all over the world grow in the realms of mental clarity and relational communication and helps them to actualize their potential. In 2014, Connor founded Man Talks, a community for men looking to deepen their sense of self-awareness. And today, he has expanded Man Talks to over a dozen cities, and he's the host of a top-ranked podcast. Though Connor and I focus this conversation on men's work and healing, the topics we discuss, breaking free from shame and self-isolation, owning our emotions, and connecting with a kind of inner strength that comes from courage and humility— 
rather than domination and subjugation, are universally relevant, no matter who you are. The topic of masculinity can feel especially tricky these days, and I love how Connor acknowledges both men's capacity to be harmful and harmed, thoughtless and misunderstood. And I think in this conversation, we strive to hold cultural conditioning as a context rather than as an excuse. I hope that you enjoy this conversation. Let's get right into the episode. Hi, Connor. Thank you so much for being here with me today. Yeah. Thank you so much for having me. I appreciate it. I'm excited to have you here for a a few different reasons. One is I was thinking back to, um, I've been on, on your podcast, Man Talks, a couple of times, but the first time I was on your show, which was like almost six years ago now, I think it was one of the very first podcast interviews I had ever done. So when I think about my journey with being interviewed on podcasts, like I always go to you as like one of my very first times. So this feels so full circle to be able to uh, have you in my space. That's awesome. I love I love that. And while you're you're one of my first interviews with the book coming out, and so that feels that feels uh, very <gasps> appropriate, actually. <laughs> That's so appropriate. Um, okay, and then the next thing is, is that you know it's always fun to connect with somebody who is also a card carrying proud member of the Vienna Farron fan club, which we're both you know we're both members of. I think you have a little bit of a senior title on me, but she was my. My student first, and then my very good friend and your wife. So we've got that also in common. We're both part of the same fan club. Agreed. Oh, I feel like I have. I might have a little bit more VIP access on that front, but yes. <laughs> <You do. laughs> <laughs> but I, I, there is a very robust fan club that is out there for sure. <laughs> And then I also, I mean, I'm just excited to dive in on this book, Connor. It is, it's just beautiful. It is a beautiful book that is going to help so many men and also so many people who love men. So congratulations. And I am here for us to just dive in and like celebrate what an accomplishment this is. Thank you. Thank you so much. I I appreciate that. Yeah, that, that was definitely the intention when I wrote it. Well, that's, I mean, it just, it comes through. It just feels, it just, it's just really loving, a really loving offering. Um, Okay. So before we dive in on all things men, (laughs) I want to ask you the relational self-awareness question. Are you ready for it? I'm ready. Okay. So Connor, what's a growing edge that you're working on these days in one of your important relationships and what has it been teaching you? There's so many that I could share, honestly. Um, a mentor of mine, Dewey Freeman, says, uh, and maybe it's not him, but maybe he's just quoting somebody else, but he, he says that we are wounded in relationships and we heal in relationship. Mm-hmm. And so I'm constantly looking to push the edge on that front. But um, I'll share something fairly personal, which is uh, last year when there was no um, travel allowed between Canada and the United States, uh, my mom was diagnosed with stage four cancer. And my mom and I haven't had a a great relationship. We were close when I was a boy, um, but then addiction really influenced her life and sort of took over her life. And so she sort of, you know, faded into the background of my life for a very, very long time. And uh, my son was born and then my mom was diagnosed with cancer and I wasn't sure if I was going to be able to go see her. And so I've really been exploring how to deepen that relationship, knowing that she's terminal, knowing that she 
has a, you know, sort of an undisclosed amount of time left. And knowing that there's sort of this sense of we've, I think we've missed a few years, you know, and I think she feels that and I feel that. I, you know, I've been really intentional with having as many conversations with her as possible and, and trying to get a sense of who she is, you know, who she views mm-hmm. herself as and learning to love that person. Um, because for a long time, all that I knew uh, about my mom was her addiction. Really, mm-hmm. it just was like the cloud of her life. And so uh, being in this position where I'm starting to really get to know who she is now that she's sober, she got sober to go through chemotherapy and radiation and whatnot. It, it has been a bit of a mixed bag of tremendous grief and and at the same time, a gift and joy in the sense that you know, my mom battled to get sober for a very long time. And all of a sudden, here she is, finally at the end of her life, getting sober. And it's been a gift in the sense that I've really gotten to know yeah. her and gotten to know her past and gotten to know her childhood and um, and shared some experiences with her that have been wonderful. You know, she's fought long enough to come and meet my son and we're going to go home and see her at Christmas. And, mm. you know, so my... 20 month old boy can spend some more time with her. And so that that's really been pushing an edge for me relationally because it's, you know, it, it really has been a lot in the sense that, you know, on the one hand, I had always played this role of trying to help her and save her from her addiction and, you know, really tried to play that role of getting her into sobriety. And, and then I let go of that entirely years before this, this happened but over the course of the last year, you know, all of that has sort of uh, started to emerge. And so we've, we've really had some fruitful conversations and there's, there's many more to come. But I would say relationally, that's, that's really where I'm pushing my edge right now. It's, I mean, it is truly like the, the epitome of like the idea of bittersweet, right? It's so right there at, at the both end of, like you said, grief for all of the years that this was not possible and then, and then stepping like ever so gently into what is possible now, which is only possible, by the way, because of your willingness, right? There's a parallel world where you could say too little, too late, you know, where you could not put yourself face to face with all of the emotions that arise in you when you decide to step back into relation with somebody. There's a lot of, of risk there and vulnerability there and grief there. Yeah. And, and and I think anger as well, you know, anger for years of not having the type of relationship that I knew was possible because of the addiction. I think this is a very common thing. I did years of Al-Anon work, which is specifically for children of alcoholics, because I was curious, you know, um, and I think that that sort of anger and frustration was one of the first things that I had to to face and confront. And And I think that, you know, oftentimes since, you know, from a man's perspective, um, anger, we as men oftentimes have very specific relationships with anger, I think, as, um, as everyone does. But I love the, the uh, line from David White, who's one of my favorite poets. Oh. He said, yeah, he's just, isn't he great? <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> isn't he just like wonderful? Magic. Uh-huh. Yeah. But he, he talks about anger in one of his books, Constellations. And he, he says that anger is the deepest form of caring. 
And <laughs> I sat with that for a long time to view this anger that I had held about the type of relationship that I wanted with her and, and didn't necessarily get or the life that I wanted for her, you know, and all the, all the possibilities, just everything. Right. And so I think an access point to the grief at first was just admitting that I, that I was angry because I sort of had put on this, um, front for a very long time of, no, I'm good. And it doesn't affect me and I'm fine. And, you know, I'm, I deal with her addiction just okay. And, you know, all that kind of stuff until I really got to sort of admit like, no, I'm, I'm angry about this and, and that's okay. And my anger is, is not something bad or vile. It's actually something that points to the fact that I care, you know, that I, that I, that I really do. And then that became the access point. And I think for many men, the truth is that anger is an access point or a gateway to the rest of their emotional body. And that's not true for all men, but it's true for many men that anger is a, is a gateway towards the emotional body. And so, yeah, so that's, I just wanted to add that one piece in there because I think that's been an important element. It's a really important element. And it's like you're saying, the way that you're saying it is that a reminder that anger isn't the sum total of the experience. It is the gateway into something more nuanced that you can't even possibly get to until you honor the anger, right? And just let it be what it is rather than, yeah, whatever. I mean, I think that there are highly gendered, well, there's highly gendered stories about all of the emotions, all the facets of our experience, but you're naming the gendered aspect for men around anger, that it's mm-hmm. so, there's so much risk or we we have all been touched by um, horrible experiences, potentially, you know, at least either our own or a couple of degrees away from us of the, of the terror and the violence of men's anger. But that's not the sum total mm-hmm. of men's experiences of anger, that there's lots, there's lots between stuffing it and acting it out. And you couldn't get to any of it until you let yourself just acknowledge that anger was real. Yeah. I mean, that's, I think that's a good way of putting it. I think generally anger is the, the socially acceptable emotion for men oftentimes mm-hmm you know, not, or, or socially very unacceptable. Right. I think it's the one that oftentimes within masculine culture or male culture, we, we look at and we're like, yeah, that's okay for me to feel and express. And then externally, it's the one that oftentimes we catch the most heat for. Um, so we have a very interesting mm. dichotomous relationship with our anger, but I, I do think that for, and I can only speak for myself and the, and you know, the men that I've worked with, but I, I have seen a lot of men's sort of first step towards healing, towards opening, towards, um, you know, healing some of the relationships is, is really about coming to contact with that anger or understanding that it even exists and how it's playing out in their life. And so it, it is an, I think an important element for, for many, many folks. Mm-hmm. Do you feel like you're at a crossroads in your love life? Maybe you are sick of modern dating or wondering if the person that you're with is your person. Whatever your situation, I have the perfect podcast for you, Dateable. Dateable is your insider's look into modern dating, hosted by Julie Krafchick and Yue Shu. Julie and Yue bring a sense of humor to their insightful explorations of all things dating, turning matches into actual dates, the psychology of relationships, red flags, attachment styles, and so much more. I am proud to have been a guest on their podcast three times. So if you're looking for a great starting point, check out my latest episode with them when you're ready and they're not. I'll put a link at the bottom of the show notes.
Wherever you start, this podcast is going to help you feel inspired to date differently and create a love life that works for you. Subscribe to Dateable wherever you get your podcasts. You founded the Man Talks community in 2014, which has since grown and became and has become the heart of your podcast and your retreats and now this book. Um, but that can you tell us a little bit about what brought you to the work that now really is your life's work and and the work that is you've developed such an enormous platform for? Tell us what how did you get into this work? Essentially, you know, I I was living a, a life of duality in a lot of ways. I had a lot of great things on paper. I was in a great relationship. I had a, from the outside, a good career. I was traveling the world um, and, you know, sort of living abroad. And I was, I was creative as a classical singer and all of that looked great on the outside, but behind the scenes, I was really struggling and I was, you know, abusing substances. I was womanizing. I was, there was lots of infidelity, lots of cheating, lots of pornography. And I really internally, felt completely out of control and no one really knew what was happening in my life. No one really knew what was going on. And so that led me to what happens with, with a lot of people, which is um, I had sort of bought into this unconscious notion that change wasn't going to be possible until I bottomed out until I sort of hit this rock bottom somewhere in the distant future that I knew was coming. You know, that was the odd thing is that I knew this was coming and so at, at that time, I was questioning leaving my career. Um, I didn't really like the business too much. And uh, my, the woman that I was dating at the time had found out that I had had an, an affair ongoing, multiple affairs. I cheated multiple times. And she had sort of caught me. And I continued to try and lie because up until that point, I could sort of talk my way through and out of, out of anything. Um, and it didn't work that time. And I didn't want people to know how bad things were in my life. I didn't want people to know how bad I'd been struggling. I wanted to continue this sort of like facade of being impenetrable and invulnerable. And yeah, so like having my shit together, you know, it's like I, I just, I was so determined to, to show people that I had my shit together. And so I moved all my stuff into storage. I lived out of the back of my car for a few weeks. And I, and I really gave myself the experience of what I thought I deserved because I had such a toxic inner dialogue. It was so abusive that um, that's what I thought I deserved. I thought I deserved to isolate. I, th I thought I deserved to be alone and live out of the back of my car and not have anybody support me. And when I started to come out of that, I was fortunate at that time in my life to have a mentor in my life named Bernard who was very well-versed in Buddhism and Jungian psychology, he eventually started to take me underneath his wing and I started to work with him and I started to learn Jungian principles and all of these things. But the real kicker was that I, when I started to tell the people what had been going on in my life, when I started to talk to my friends and my family and say, Hey, listen, I've, I've been abusing substances, you know, drugs, alcohol, uh, you know, I've been unfaithful in my relationships. I really, I, at that time, I really had a problem with pornography. I was watching some, sometimes hours a day. It was really an issue. Um, and I was really struggling. And so when I started to talk to people, it was interesting is that I started to notice that a lot of the men in my life were dealing with similar challenges that they had never talked about before that I didn't know about. And it really hit home in a conversation with one of the men that I had gone to university with, who I'd lived with. I, I knew everything about this man. I sat down, I sort of 
put the cards out, right? So this is what's been going on. Yeah, I've been lying to you, I've been lying to everybody in my life. Um, and I sort of talked at him for about half an hour, as we sometimes do when we're confessing. Yeah, uh-huh, <laughs> and, uh-huh, uh-huh. Don't and, stop uh, me now. <laughs> at the, yeah, don't stop me now. Mm-hmm. And, and at the end, I sort of paused and there was this silence and you know, he broke down a little bit and um, got very emotional and thanked me, which I thought was very odd at the time. And then proceeded to tell me that he had been so depressed that he had tried to take his own life about a month and a half before. And, and it still, it still makes me uh, emotional to this day to, to, to be back in that moment. But I remember in, in that moment thinking, how do I know everything about you as a human being? I know what you like to drink. I know your favorite TV shows. I know your favorite foods, your favorite music. Like I, I thought I knew everything about him except for this really important element, which was how he was struggling. And I had withheld the exact same thing, how I had been struggling. And I started to see this in, in most of my male relationships. Most of the relationships that I had with other men were very surface level. They lacked depth. They just lacked depth and authenticity and, and truth. And that made me deeply sad, but it also sort of ignited something within me that I had a sort of a cause and a purpose and a mission that ignited out of that. I didn't really know it in the moment. I didn't really know it until years later, but something sparked in me in that moment to just be like, no, it doesn't. I know it doesn't have to be like this because I started to see that the act of being honest with the other men in my life um, actually elevated and deepened our relationships. It actually created the type of dynamic that I was looking for and that I had been craving and a type of dynamic that I think most of the men had been craving and, and didn't even know it. So, yeah, so that's the sort of long and short of it. Well, it's, I'm so appreciative of you sharing your story because it is so, it's such a reminder of how your work just emerges from your pain. You are not coming down from on high. You are right. You are just coming up through all of the pain and, and doing what your, your, your book then becomes your book called men's work becomes then a guide for how you turn pain into purpose, right? How you do something with pain that, that starts, that can't start until, until you allow yourself to do something different with the pain besides what you said, I mean, you, you describe it as a four-step process that our culture gave to you, right? The four-step process that, that our culture teaches to all men, which is step one, suck it up. Step two, stuff it down. Step three, pour a bottle of whiskey over the top and finish it off by rubbing one out for good measure. And then four, rinse and maybe repeat as necessary until sufficiently numbed out or forgotten about. That's the cycle, hey? That's the, that's the general cycle. And I, you know, I used it for a very long time and I see so many men trying to use that cycle in their own lives where they're hurting after a divorce or even just a a minor argument within a relationship and, and no one has taught them what to do with their pain, what to do with their hurt. I think I said it in the book somewhere, like it's, it's easier for most men to say, fuck you than it is to say, I am hurt. And that's true for so many men. That is, it is unequivocal. It's very challenging to say, I'm hurting. You know, I'm struggling. I'm in pain. And we sort of do buy into this notion that we find strength through suppression. 
I think that that's part of the masculine culture that I'm really dedicated to shifting. You know, that suppression actually isn't, or repression isn't actually a, a gateway to strength. Like that's nonsense. And it, and it doesn't work. You know, just, it just doesn't work. It comes out sideways. There's consequences to that. And true strength is, is found in not just enduring that pain, but beginning to understand it and walk through it and, and to become a vessel or a being that's capable of carrying it effectively versus stuffing it down and hoping that you can make it through life <laughs> without, without having to face or deal with those things. So, Well, that's, you know, as I read those four steps, I, I was just so struck by how immensely isolating that is, right? Like those are four steps, the sucking it down, the drinking, the, the jerking off to porn, like that is just, you are so alone. You're so al- isolated in that, in that attempt to deal with pain. And it's all so shame promoting, right? It's all, it, it just yields shame. It yields isolation and just keeps men stuck from themselves and stuck from each other. As you were describing with your, with your college friend, this was a man that you, you could name 15 facts about him. You've got immense numbers of stories about him, but he was alone in pain and you were alone in pain. I mean, there's a lot, there's a lot that could be said about men in isolation, but, you know, I think that in many ways we, we do buy into this notion that strength is at the forefront of what we need to uh, externally present within the world as men. And, and I don't think that that's always the case, right? I don't think that that's universally the case, but where I grew up in Northern Alberta, which is sort of like the Texas of Canada, that certainly was the case, you know, that was part of the culture. And I, you know, I think I started to realize that many men feel sort of directionless in trying to understand how they can begin to feel emotionally, psychologically, or, or even physically strong in some ways without enacting this repression. And I think in, in many ways, we outsource our nervous system. We outsource our own regulation to external, um, objects, substances, processes as men. This is a very common thing. Like the reason why so many guys, I work with a lot of men that, um, you know, are using sex or pornography or some sort of substance to uh, deal with the hurt that they have internally. And usually they can't kick the pornography or the, the sexting or, you know, the, whatever it is, uh, the substance because there's some pain underneath that that they haven't learned how to deal with. And they think that if they're just alone with that pain, they can sequester it away from the people that they love and it won't impact them. And that's very frightening for a lot of men. It's like, oh, if I tell people about this, if I tell people about the pain that I'm in or feel, then it might damage them too. Or if I tell people about them, then this pain, then not only will it damage them, but how am I supposed to function? Like I work with a lot of guys that are in finance or artists or, you know, in, or athletes. And I can't tell you the amount of men that say when they first come in to work with me, one of their greatest fears is if I start doing this work, will I be able to function in my job, in my career? Like, am I going to fucking fall apart? <laughs> can I still go onto the trading floor or into the office or onto the field? Like, am I going to, am I going to fall apart? Am I going to stop functioning? And so there's this very real fear that if I let out some of my emotional pain and actually let somebody into my inner world, there's a deep, deep fear that they won't be able to function 
any longer in the capacity that they have been functioning because oftentimes they're using that pain to overfunction, to be high functioning in their work environment or their life or finances or whatever it is. That is um, a fear of letting go of the old way because the old way, the old way doesn't, it doesn't not work, right? It works in some ways because they've reached that level of their careers. They've figured out how to, they've, they've figured out a good enough solution to some of these conundrums. You write about it so beautifully when you write about the your your experiences with infidelity and with porn is that it's it is like an attempted solution that works in some ways. It gives you the hit and reinforces the shame that you is what you feel like that's all you deserve anyway. So it is right, but that is a there's a kind of surrender and a kind of trust that has to happen to even you know let them imagine with you that there might possibly be any other way of doing life of showing up. How do you, how do you achieve, right? How, how do you achieve from a place that is different from, I have to achieve in order to prove again today that I'm worth something, that my worth has to be reinforced every single day through performance. What I usually bring to the table is just a simple question of, have you ever considered that your pain has its own intelligence and is working against you? And generally speaking, they haven't, right? Most, most guys have not sort of sat and pondered like, oh, this, this stuff that I've been holding down about my childhood or my past or my decisions in my marriage or in my finances or whatever it is. No, I haven't actually thought about whether or not there's negative consequences to this part of me and, and avoiding this part of me. And so that's, that's usually where I begin. It's just creating a little bit of an opening of what's the price that you're paying for ignoring this part? And what is it actually trying to communicate with you? Because our, our pain, like in a Jungian framework, Jung talked about the shadow quite a bit. And I talk about the shadow a little bit in the book. And, you know, this, this notion that there's this sort of alter ego to us that's working against us. And he actually said the shadow forms an unconscious snag uh, thwarting our most well-meant intentions, right? So the shadow forms an unconscious snag thwarting our most well-meant intentions. And so that's our pain. So that's our, that's the things that we haven't necessarily wanted to deal with that we haven't wanted to show people. And so part of it is just saying like, you know, what do you think that that part of you has been up to? <laughs> and, and, and what is it trying to communicate to you? And so just doing a little bit of basic sort of parts work and bring them into contact with that and having them, uh, share a little bit about this part of them that they haven't brought forward to anybody before they talk about, you know, something that may have been painful from their past or, or anything like that. So that's usually the, the sort of first access point. And then really the second access point is um, getting them to have a sense of what they're feeling before they are trying to numb out. So one of the major things that I'll do is tell me about your porn routine. Every man has a porn routine, every single one. And if they watch porn, that is. <laughs> so I'll say, tell me about your, your porn routine. What do, you, what do you do before you watch porn? Because for a lot of guys, it's like, oh, it's first thing in the morning or it's you know, right before bed and I light this candle and I'm sitting in this position and, and it's very detailed. And I say, okay, cool. So that's, that's what you're doing. What are you feeling before you do that? So I start to bring them into contact with, oh, I'm feeling pretty alone or I'm feeling really bored, or I'm feeling so stressed out and overwhelmed, and I can't seem to stabilize myself. And so I actually need that to go to bed, or I need that to wake up and go to work. 
So I start to bring them into contact with the physical sensations as well in the body, which is really important because for a lot of us, um, we live in our head in our modern culture. <laughs> we just live in our thoughts and we never actually connect to our, our direct felt experience. So those are, those are just a couple ways in which we begin to bring them into contact with, with their own pain. There's a, a gentleman that I had on my show named Francis Weller, whose work I really appreciate. And he, he said, isolation makes us impotent. I think that that's true to some degree, that when we isolate, it cuts us off from our natural sense of integrity or intuition, our strength. But it also cuts us off from the, the nutrients of relationship that we actually need in order to heal. And that's one of the most damaging parts of it. And I think the challenge is that for men, depending on the generation that you've grown up in, uh, many, many men have been raised by men who sort of grow, grew up in this Marlboro man mentality, right? This Lone Ranger mentality where the sovereign or hyper individual man became wildly pedestaled. Um, but that archetype of man was also deeply wounded because he couldn't, he really struggled to be in relationship with people. And so a lot of men use isolation as a protection mechanism for themselves and for the people that they love. So they shut off, they shut down, they numb out, they pull away. They do all those. The, the misconception is that they're doing those things because they're angry, but they're generally doing those things to protect themselves and the people around them, whether it's conscious or not. And so for me, isolation is an, equals amplification. That's what I talk about a little bit in the book, and that's what I talk about online, is that isolation amplifies what you are experiencing internally. And so for a lot of men, when they start to isolate, it starts to amplify their internal feelings of anxiety or depression or self-loathing or shame or whatever it is. And they are more attached to those experiences internally than they are in the people in their lives. And that's the struggle. So starting to see, starting to walk men through, what's the strongest attachment that you have? What's the strongest relationship that you, ha that you have in your life? Is it with another man, a friend of yours? Is it in your relationship? Is it with your partner? Is it with a family member? Or is it with this inner critic that is constantly berating you and pulling you apart and, and verbally abusing you? I do this exercise at weekends and retreats that I run with men where I'll partner them up. And it's a very simple exercise, but it's wildly profound. And all I do is I say, okay, sit across from this other man. And I get them to write down, I'll have gotten them to write down before, everything that their inner critic says, verbatim, word for word. And then I'll get them to sit across from the other man. And I'll say, okay, speak to that other man from the voice of your inner critic. And every single man in the room is like, no, I don't, I don't want to do that. I, you know, I, I absolutely don't want to do that. Well, how come? Because that's, that's abusive, right? It's like, well, how come you're letting yourself speak to yourself like that? So it becomes very clear, um, the byproduct of their isolation, that as they're isolating themselves more and more and more, even though they think that it's out of protection, they're moving themselves closer and closer to this sort of abusive self-relationship that they've created. And again, this isn't every single man, right? These are just, this is, this is uh, a lot of guys that are struggling in some way, shape or form. But so for a lot of guys, isolation uh, is a protection mechanism. It's a way for them to 
not have to um, worry about becoming overly angry. It's a way for them to not have to face or confront the hard things in their relationship. It's a way for them to justify protecting their partner. Um, so isolation becomes this thing of like, I'm going to take the grenade so that we don't have to get into conflict. All right? I'm going to take the grenade of, of isolation so that my anger doesn't get out of control because I feel like I, I don't know how to control it anymore in this conversation. And so a lot of guys are struggling to connect with their partner, with friends, with other men. And I, I think that we've seen this in the data, right? It was like there was a study in the UK in 2019 that, that showed that it was something like 50% of men couldn't identify a best friend in the UK, 50%, right? They have a, they have a minister of loneliness mm -hmm. <laughs> in the UK because it is such a problem. And it's, and it's a lot of men. There's sort of like this quiet epidemic of men struggling to maintain deep connection and feel connected to other individuals. So maybe I'll just pause there because I said a, a bunch of stuff. Well, you said a bunch of stuff that is incredibly important. And I, you know, one of the things I wanted to ask you about, because this, the listenership for Reimagining Love skews female for sure. And so one of the things I wanted to talk to you about was what do you feel like women tend to get wrong about men or misunderstand about men? And I think that you just, to me, you, you hit an important piece of it, which is that isolation, that pulling away, that shutting down. What he thinks he's doing is sparing her, saving her, protecting her, that he will just, he will, as you said, lay, lay on the grenade in protection. And it's not, it's not to justify that behavior or excuse that behavior, but you certainly are helping us contextualize that behavior because what she feels, her experience, her phenomenological experiences, I can't reach him. I don't know where he goes. He's emotionally unavailable to me. And what likely is going on for him is that he just, the voice of that critic is so loud and, um, and she just can't, he can't even hear her through all of that, right? Yeah. Yeah. And I think for, for a lot of the men that I've worked with, isolation has just been a norm. You know, hmm. they haven't felt very connected. They haven't had strong attachments in their childhood. They haven't felt deeply connected to other people for a very long time. And so it, it has become a way of being. And so to be in a deep relationship is foreign territory to really have a, a depth of connection. And I'm going to use the V word, but <laughs> of, of depth of vulnerability in a relationship <laughs> is, is foreign territory. Right. And so for a lot of men, it's like, well, I don't know how to do that. And if I risk it, if I actually open up and I'm honest and transparent and tell you how I'm feeling, tell you what's going on, what happens if you leave? Right. Cause then I've, then I've taken this huge risk of being open and transparent with you. And I haven't done that with anybody else. So I think what, what maybe um, women sometimes get wrong about men is how frightening it is for the average man to open up and be honest. And that if a man does that, he's risking a lot because there's a lot of story and narrative out there that tells a man you shouldn't do that. And that also tells a man that if you do that, women aren't going to like it and women aren't going to like you. And I'm using a heteronormative frame, but I, I think that that is still applicable for any other type of relationship. And so we have to just be conscious of the fact that this is a protection mechanism. It's not necessarily about um, you as an individual or personalizing it, that it's oftentimes a man's way to protect what matters to him, to protect himself, to protect his relationship, or to, to protect his partner. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think writing a writing a book about gender in this moment is is itself <laughs> an act of courage. And you do a beautiful yeah. job of na- just locating yourself, the work that you do, who you are speaking to, and you you know you walk through all of that. I think with a great deal of grace. But one of the things that you you write to men about being an in intimate partnership with women. This is from chapter six. You write most men are so outwardly focused that they turn their relationship or partner into an object, unintentionally missing out on who they become and what's being revealed, ultimately losing sight of what they truly desire. The woman becomes the object you need to have, the object causing your problems or confusion, or the object that can give you something that you need, like validation. When you adopt this unconscious and almost automatic way of being with women, you become stuck, caged, or imprisoned by the mental model that what you need to get or understand is outside of yourself. I, you know, I've got a couple of women's studies degrees under my belt. I read that and I was like, ping, 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 ping. Like it just, it just landed so deeply for me, Connor, about, of course, men objectify women in this way. It's a sort of psychologically um, objectify women in intimate partnership in this way. How couldn't they? Our culture objectifies women. You know, women self-objectify. We self-objectify ourselves. It's just so endemic to patriarchy. So this is so, it was so fascinating for me to to read you writing about when a man objectifies a woman in, in, in intimate partnership, then she becomes something that he has to manage, right? Fix, solve, shift, and it's, it's that gnarly, subtle extension of objectification that, that is what patriarchy does with women. So how could men not? I love to use the word gnarly. I haven't heard that in a while. I love that. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. But yeah, I mean, you know, I think you know, having worked with honestly like tens of thousands of men now over the years, we have this proclivity towards hyper externalization. And there's a lot of sort of narratives and tropes, right? Happy wife, happy life that are pervasive in our culture that sort of insinuate that you as a man have to figure out your wife and what she needs or your partner and what they need. And in in order for you to be happy, you have to figure that out first. And so you're hyper-focused. A lot of men are hyper-focused in on is she happy? Does she have what she wants? You know, is she angry with me? Is she disappointed? And it it almost extracts them from the equation. And so they become this sort of, there's this sort of ghost-like quality that happens in the relationship where there's no, who am I being in the relationship? You know, what am I wanting? What am I needing in the relationship? Versus, and I've talked with so many guys at workshops and clients and stuff like that. I'll ask, how do you think you get your needs met in a relationship? And it's astonishing how many of them fundamentally believe that they have to figure out what their partner wants first before they have any right or justification to bring their needs into the equation. And so again, it's their needs, their wants, their desires, their hopes, their expectations, how they're acting, how they're behaving is almost all uh, subjugated or, or sequestered away within the relationship because they're so sort of devilishly focused in on what does she want? What does she need? How do I make her happy? And, and then once that mission is accomplished, then maybe I can bring forward what I want and need in the relationship. So I, and I think that that sort of um, is confusing sometimes or, or counter because I think a lot of women are like, well, men are always saying what they need, right? 
when I'm sitting with a room full of women, that is what I, I always talk about. You know, the thing that I have learned from doing like 20 plus years of couples therapy is how incredibly anchored most husbands are on how they appear in their wife's eyes, like how pleased or displeased she is with him in any given moment. And I think that most women don't, don't even notice that or understand that, but it's when you're, you know, in doing couples therapy, like I can just track it and I can track his, he's choosing his words based on, you know, what she's experiencing. He's positioning himself vis-a-vis her. He's horrified at the idea of disappointing her. And it, and oftentimes, the, then the resulting, I mean, oftentimes this is what infidelity is rooted in, right? Is I need to go then, if I'm so anchored in how she's doing, how I look in her eyes, then I am at risk of then going to find another woman who looks upon me, you know, who idealizes me when my wife no longer does, or who looks at me differently than my wife does. So it's not, it's a road to nowhere, right? And oftentimes men uh, end up, you know, behaving in ways that create a ton of pain. And it's not not about justifying or excusing it, but it is really important, I think, to understand the consequences of that hyper externalization that you're talking about. Yeah. And I think, you know, I was was on a different podcast called Girls Gotta Eat. And uh, they're hilarious. They're like these two comedians so, that are I've listened to that them. Are very, very vulgar. Have mm-hmm. you been on that show? Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> I, no, I have not been on, but I've listened to it. Okay, okay. <laughs> yeah, they are, they're hilarious. And, you know, they, they were sort of inquiring with me about this. And they said, what do you think that women get wrong about men? And I said, I think that women often underestimate how desperately and how badly a man wants to win with you. Yeah. Like it's, there really is. Men want to win and not in this sort of, dominating way, but like men want to get it right, you know, and they, that's where for a lot of guys, society and culture and their, their past has conditioned them in such a way that says, when you get it right, when you're performing well, you are a good man. You are a better man. When you are performing poorly, when the other person's disappointed in you constantly, you're a bad man. You're not a good partner. You're not a good husband. And so I think that is this sort of miscommunication that starts to happen within relationships. And so the reason why I wrote about that in the book, because I want men to be able to turn that hyper-focused externalization inwards and start to see how am I operating in this relationship? What needs, wants, desires am I not bringing forward? Have I not communicated? Have I deprioritized? Um, What behaviors have I been justifying in the relationship that I can probably take ownership over? And to stop sort of fixating on their partner so heavily, because what happens is that they, they start running around on this moving target of, I have to get it right with you. And it creates this hypersensitivity where a lot of men become very reactive as soon as their partner is disappointed in them. You know, it's like, oh, you forgot to do this. And they, they blow up, yeah. you know? Yeah, that's <laughs> and it's right. like, well, that's, right. that's what happens mm-hmm. when your worth in a relationship is contingent on the other person being yeah. satisfied and happy all the time. Yeah. That's male, it's, it's that's men's, that's the heart of men's defensiveness very often, right? Is I have to get defensive because I have to shift your perception because your perception is that I did something wrong then I'm back to square one and I have to rebuild my entire sense of worth in your eyes. Yeah, that's right. The yeah. stakes are so high. And it's, that's a heavy burden to carry in a relationship, you know? And I think that for a lot of men, it doesn't leave room for them to connect in the way that they really want, you know, in the depth of sexual intimacy or emotional intimacy, right? In, in creating a, a vision for the relationship together. It just doesn't allow them to really 
have as much of a voice in the dynamic as they want. And so they're sort of, they're sort of running around trying to figure out a woman or figure out their partner. And that's very time consuming. It doesn't actually allow for the other person to express who they are because you're trying to construct who they are constantly. And it largely blinds a man to who he is in the dynamic, which is the most detrimental part. And, you know, in that section, I say like, you're the journey, you know, you, your inner psychology, your inner morals, your inner ethics, your inner intuition, your gut, you are the journey. And when you can start to reverse that external focus into who am I and who do I want to be and who do I want to become, how do I want to be aligned in my life and my relationship, then things start to shift because then the partner can really feel him. You know, they can really start to feel him and what he wants and what he expects. And, and that he, what a lot of women will say is he feels much more safe. Because then he's able to see how he's responding, how he's acting, how he's behaving, what he wants, what he needs. He's able to communicate those things. And so, and that was something that I had to learn because for a very long time, I didn't know what the hell I wanted. And that was the most terrifying part, right? It was like, well, how do I communicate what I don't know? And so I really had to, to turn the lens around and start to explore what it was that I, that I wanted and who I wanted to be in the context of relationship. It's often the case that he's not, it's not that he's holding out on her. It's not like he has this deep well of self-awareness that he's holding out on her. That's not the, that's not the, the heart of his emotional constrictedness. It's that he hasn't gone on that journey. He hasn't turned inward. He doesn't even know how to language his internal experience because where would he have learned that, right? So much in our culture prevents men, in fact, from, from developing self-awareness from understanding how to identify and name an emotional experience to, to develop a felt sense of what's going on inside of themselves. So it's not that they are, men are very often not depriving their partner of that information. They just don't have it and they don't know the tools for how they might access that internal understanding of what's happening inside of me. Yeah, that's, that's very well said. And I think for a lot of guys, they need a catalyst to go within because it's frightening you know, to face who they actually are, to face the voice inside, that that's a, that's a confronting journey. It does take bravery. And I think that more and more as men are starting to have these different types of conversations in our culture and our society amongst themselves, there's more examples of men that are doing that type of work, that are doing this introspection to start to see who, who am I really and how am I acting? How am I behaving? And what is it that I actually want and need? And so I think that that is shifting culturally uh, and socially, but I think it's, it's happening at an individual level as well, which is really important. A lot of men are struggling to forgive someone from their past or struggling to forgive themselves in some capacity. And I, that's a question I get a lot from men is how do I forgive myself? How do I forgive others? And I almost always will say that grieving is necessary for forgiveness to be present. And the challenge is, is that one, sort of twofold, number one, not a lot of men let themselves grieve. And number two, they sure as hell don't let other men see them grieve. And so the, the potency that is possible and that happens on the other side of being a man who allows himself to grieve something in his life 
to grieve a decision or a choice of infidelity, to grieve something that happened in his past, you know, the loss of a child or a parent or whatever it is. And to be witnessed in that grief is incredibly powerful for men because it gives them something that I think a, a lot of, a lot, maybe not everyone, but a lot of men um, have had historically, which is community of community amongst men in a way that was safe, in a way that isn't just about competition and in a way that isn't just about, um, you know, sort of showboating and showing, you know, how great your achievements are and accomplishments and making more money. It's like, no, no, I want to know the depth of your character as a man. That's, that's what matters to me. That's what's meaningful and purpose, purposeful to me as a man. And so when we create that type of space for men and they step into it and they do that, there's a liberation that happens because now they can go back into their relationship and I call it the, the emotional processing center, right? And so a lot of men turn their partners into their emotional processing center. And so anytime that they feel something that they don't know how to deal with, they take it to their wife or the girlfriend or their boyfriend or whatever it is. And they say, help me deal with this. And instead, now he's got a community of men that can help him work through and process what he's actually experiencing. So that frees him up to actually be in relationship with his partner, to actually be present and grounded and loving and whole and more communicative and more intimate. And so that's the, that's the real beauty of, of the group work. So, yeah. We will put the notes everywhere about where to go to get your brand new book, Men's Work. But what are the best places for people to find you and, and dive more deeply into all of the good stuff you're doing? Probably the easiest place is just on Instagram. It's just at man talks on Instagram. Uh, and then you can go to mantalks.com and there's links to the podcast there, uh, the book, any programs that I have. And, um, we also have an online membership for men that has like over 500 guys in it now from around the world. And so it's a great, it's just a great resource if you're wanting to learn more about men, or if you're looking for some solid, you know, stuff for the men in your life then this book and the, you know, the podcast and some of the resources that we have are, are probably a good, good place to go. Wonderful. Wonderful. Thank you so much, Connor. Thanks. Thank you, Connor, for providing a peek into your book through this wonderful conversation. As a listener, I hope you have been able to reflect on how these ideas connect to your life whether personally or pertaining to the men that you know and love. I really encourage you to check out Connor's new book, Men's Work. It's linked in the show notes. Until next time, be well. Thank you for listening to our show. Our producer is Elizabeth Vogt. Our editors are Mary Chan and Danelle Cloutier of Organized Sound Productions. Our theme music was composed by Slade Warnkin. Reimagining Love is executive produced by me, Dr. Alexandra Solomon. Do you have a relationship question that you want to have answered on the show? Follow the link in the show notes of this episode to send in a written or audio question. Questions can be about intimate partnerships, family relationships.